so for our, our final uh, block of flash talks uh, is going to focus uh, to a significant extent on transparency. Uh, one of the ways uh, we have been able to become informed about the extent of government surveillance is not just through leaks uh, from, from folks like Edward Snowden, but via uh, transparency reports that major platforms are increasing, uh, increasingly producing uh, to try and provide a measure of visibility by the public, not obviously into the specifics of who the government is, is looking for information on, but at least the scale and what sort of authorities are being used for that purpose. Uh, so we're going to have uh, two talks from uh, major platforms uh, about their transparency reports. Uh, at the start with uh, Facebook's Head of Strategic Initiatives and Response, Alexandra Galloway. Hello, uh, as he said, I'm Alex Galloway, and one of the things that our team is in charge of at Facebook is our transparency hub, uh, formerly known as the Government Request Report, but we've been um, expanding it significantly. So I'll start out with some really high-level um, points on why do we do the transparency report. Um, and so as Julian just said, Originally, this was really just focused on our government requests, and that was the name of the report. And it was to hold governments accountable for the information they request, to provide insight into how often we provide data to governments and the rigorous process we have in place to review these requests, and to provide some context on the relative scale of how many users the government is requesting information on. Uh, it's evolved significantly. We try and add more information every year. Um, and now it includes a little bit more in helping the world understand better how to measure the work companies like ours do to make users safe, both physically and also their data, and to hold ourselves publicly accountable for the actions we take in these, space, in these spaces. So I won't go into all the, all the pieces here, but uh, this is sort of a timeline of all the things we've been adding since we launched our first report back in 2013. So each year, we, each half, we release a report and we try to add a little bit more information based on the feedback we've got from people like you in the room about what's important. So I'll briefly, we'll be focusing on the government-related spokes of the transparency report, but I'll go over just really quick a high level of what the five reports we currently publish are. So the newest one is our community standards report. Um, we also do our government requests for data, content restrictions based on local law, intellectual property infringement, and internet disruptions. So in our community standards enforcement report, um, we cover information about what actions we're taking to take content off the platform for violations of our community standards, such as graphic violence, terrorist propaganda, um, child, uh, child nudity, and sexual exploitation. And we're really seeking to answer five key questions here for people. How prevalent were those violations? When by prevalence we mean how often are you likely to see these violations? Uh, how much content did we take action on? How much violating content did we find before users even reported it? Um, how often, like how we proactively detect? How quickly we take action on violations? And how often we, create our we correct our mistakes? So currently we publish data on the first three of these questions. The last two questions are still in development, but we have them on our site because we want to hold ourselves accountable to the commitment to publish this information uh, eventually. So content restrictions based on local law. 
What content restrictions based on local law is, is this is content that we geoblock or restrict in certain areas based on local laws, even if it doesn't violate our community standards. So the quintessential example of this is sort of Holocaust denial, um, where we will block it in areas where Holocaust denial is illegal, um, but not take it off the platform completely. So government requests for data, which we'll dive deeper into some of these subjects later. But the main questions we're trying to answer for people currently are how often do governments ask us for data? How many accounts are requested with those requests? How often we comply with these requests? And how often we're disclosing based on national security orders? Intellectual property infringement covers our enforcement of counterfeit copyright and trademark infringement. And internet disruptions is how often people are blocked from using Facebook products and services in places where they're otherwise available. So our government requests. Um, for the last report, we covered data from the first half of 20, from the first six, uh, six months of 2018. And for the first time, we had over 100,000 requests this, uh, this half. So we complied by producing at least some data in about 74% of those instances. The highest number of requests by far comes from the United States with over 40,000 requests, followed by India, the United Kingdom, Germany, France, and Brazil. Together, the United States and the other top five countries represent almost 80% of the total requests we receive worldwide. Our global requests for the first half of 2018 were up 26%, um, which is pretty on trend with how we've been seeing growth. The reason this growth is happening is, first of all, because Facebook's growing and there's more users all the time, but also law enforcement is getting more tech savvy and coming to us more often and understanding how to request data from us. Um, we see, we've seen this, the, the upward trend in all regions. So in the Asia Pacific area countries, it was up 30%. In Latin America, it was up 10%. In the North American countries, just over 20%. And in the Europe, Middle East, and Africa, we saw it go up 20%. Uh, there are two types of requests we get from governments, and we started breaking these out so because it's important to understand the difference between why we disclose here. So emergency requests are when law enforcement submits requests to us without legal process, and we may voluntarily disclose if we have a good faith reason to believe the matter involves an imminent risk of serious bodily injury or death. Um, again, for emergency requests, they are a small fraction of what we receive. The, re the rest of the requests are legal process, which means they, we comply with those based only on applicable law and our terms of service. So these are things like search warrants or subpoenas that we receive. Um, the United States makes up a third of all of our uh, emergency requests, followed by the United Kingdom, Canada, India, Israel, and Mexico. So there's actually a different number of highest requesters for emergency requests than there is for legal process requests. So our content restrictions based on local law. Um, trends over time are a little bit misleading here because sometimes we see really high spikes based on a certain piece of content we've restricted multiple times. So for example, in you, when you see July to December 2015, that huge spike was the result of a single piece of content being restricted over 36,000 times. Um, however, if you take out some of those unusual incidents, we do see governments requesting us to take down, take down content based on local law at an increasing rate, half over half. Internet disruptions. Uh, so as I said, this is when Facebook products or services are blocked in certain countries. Um, 
it's trends over time aren't very helpful because these are very specific to sort of the political climate in individual countries, which really fluctuate each half. But in the first half of 2018, we saw eight countries blocking Facebook products or services 48 times. 83% of those disruptions, or 40 out of the 48, were in India, uh, restricting access to Facebook products and services up, up for, 11, for just over 11 weeks where people couldn't access them. Interestingly, although India blocked our services more times, um, in other countries, they were blocked for longer. So in Cameroon, Ethiopia, and Iran, they were blocked for over 25 weeks in each of those countries, followed by Chad, which was blocked for 13 weeks, and the rest were under one week each. So in terms of what's next, as I mentioned, we're continuing to grow the transparency report and try to identify what information is useful for people so they can take this data and hold their governments accountable and have meaningful conversations about what kind of data people are requesting from us and what we're doing on our platform. So going forward, we're working to stabilize our metrics enough so that we can report every single category of harmful content. Right now, we only report seven different types. Uh, we're going to be expanding that. And looking at additional metrics, as I mentioned, about how many mistakes we make and how fast we get to things. Um, metrics are always a problem in this space because we want to, first of all, use the right metric so that it's neutral and people can understand it and use that information without sort of being colored. So you'll see in the transparency report, um, we go to great efforts to really just present the data each half without a narrative around what our conclusions are, what we think, or like trying to develop a narrative around it. It's um, specifically to just really get that raw data out there. We're also developing infrastructure to move to quarterly reporting. Uh, previously, we've done this um, by half, and we're going to move to quarterly. So this is a priority of Mark Zuckerberg's um, to basically keep this on cadence with our quarterly earnings, because this, this sort of thing is just as important as those are. Uh, we're also going to start doing calls with Facebook leadership accompanying every transparency release with policymakers and academics and the press so that they can ask questions and hear directly from us on what our take is on this data each half. Um, we're also trying to expand third-party engagement. So that's a lot with the academic community and policymakers as well um, so that we can sort of pull back the curtain a little bit and get feedback and be a little bit more, more collaborative around our policymaking for the end our appeals process in addition to expanding research projects. And so that's sort of finding data that's really useful to people who are looking hard at these issues so that we can share that data with them and they can give us feedback about how we can better do our work. Uh, so I really look forward to working with some of the people in this room on this going forward and talking to you after this. Thanks, Alex. Uh, and just for, uh, I think, uh, contrast or comparison, uh, I think it was illuminating to uh, look at something like this from the perspective of a couple different companies. I wouldn't want anyone to think we were uh, extreme favoritism towards Facebook. So I'd like to ask uh, uh, David Lieber of Google to talk about their own transparency report. Thank you, Julian. Um, yeah, so we, like Facebook, have a number now of different transparency reports, a total of 12 um, that span a, a different sort of uh, spectrum of, of content, including privacy and security, content removals, and then a third category right now, is, which is really just a catch-all, uh, but includes things like our transparency report around political advertising, which is relatively new. 
Um, we published our first transparency report that covered government requests for user data in 2010, and we did it for a couple of different reasons. The first uh, was just to inform uh, the public uh, about the nature, volume, and scope uh, of government requests for user data that we receive. Um, but the second reason was to really inform the broader debate around government surveillance. Um, and that's what I really want to focus my lightning talk on today about a three discrete areas where I hope I think we made a difference, or at least we've shed some light um, on, on uh, some of the numbers behind uh, the relevant debates. Um, and those three areas are Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act demands, uh, national security letters, uh, and emergency requests. This just gives you a glimpse, a uh, bird's eye view of the number of government requests that we've received worldwide uh, over the past uh, nine or 10 years since we started publishing our transparency report. Um, in and of itself, the numbers themselves aren't necessarily going to provide you uh, with, with uh, you know, a ton of useful insight, other than to see, I think as Alexandra had recognized, uh, that we're seeing an increasing number of demands. But as you also see in recent reporting periods, uh, the number of users and accounts that have been impacted by those demands have, have, have gone up significantly. It's difficult to extrapolate from the numbers just what's behind them. Certainly, user growth is one explanation, but in terms of you know, explaining the, the growth, at least, in the numbers of users and accounts in, that are impacted, there are a lot of different reasons. And some of it really is speculation as to why, uh, why over one particular reporting period you might see a significant spike versus uh, other, other reporting periods. Um, I spoke at the Cato uh, Surveillance Conference in 2013. And I think it's important to sort of go back because we tend to lose sight of some of the gains that we made in transparency here. When I spoke uh, in October of 2013, I believe, uh, in this room, um, we were in a position where we could not disclose, we could not even acknowledge uh, that we received Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act demands from the United States government. Full stop. Um, so when we talked about it, or when I talked about it here, I had to be very careful uh, about speaking about demands that we might receive, uh, assuming that we may receive any. That's the predicament we were in at the time, uh, constrained in terms of our ability to speak about accurate and truthful information in terms of the aggregate demands, national security demands that we receive. Even one month later, uh, when our director for law enforcement and information security, Rick Salgado, testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, he was there on behalf of the world's largest internet company, um, uh, advocating in support of legislation that would enable us to speak truthfully about these types of demands. And yet, at the same time, there was an interesting ex exchange between Senator Leahy uh, and my colleague Rick, in which uh, Senator Leahy sort of uh, had asked uh, asked him whether he was here arguing for the ability to say more uh, about the demands that we receive. Uh, and my colleague said, yes. And he said, and yet you can't acknowledge right now that you actually get these demands. He said, that's also true, Senator. Um, we are in a different place now, uh, in part uh, because of the USA Freedom Act, which was enacted in 2015. Uh, the USA Freedom Act gave companies like Google and Facebook uh, the ability to say more uh, about the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act demands that we receive, and to provide a little bit more insight uh, into the nature uh, of those demands. And what you're seeing here, uh, for example, is just some reporting around uh, the um, some recent periods where we received uh, FISA non-content requests. 
And um, in this realm, there's not a lot that's terribly interesting uh, for people. You can see uh, in a particular range how many demands we, we uh, received and uh, how many users and accounts that were impacted. Uh, and you can see that's relatively consistent, uh, at least among sort of non-content. Gets a little bit more interesting, I think, when you're looking um, at, non, at uh, content requests. Um, the USA Freedom Act enables us to uh, speak with a little bit of granularity in terms of uh, requests that we receive both for content, content and for non-content, um, and to report in bands. And you can report in different, uh, different bands, different ranges, depending on uh, how granular uh, the types of disclosures that you're making. Uh, we report in bands of 500. Uh, you can see that the numbers are consistent here, uh, at least in terms of the number of demands that have been made but very different in terms of the numbers of users and, and accounts that have been impacted. Um, some of you may, may know that the USA Freedom Act, believe it or not, is scheduled to expire toward the end of next year. Um, it is an appropriate time for Congress to revisit uh, some of the constraints that are placed on providers in terms of disclosing information about uh, demands that we receive. Um, and, and, and to be clear, um, the Department of Justice has been a very good partner in terms of enabling us uh, to be more transparent here. And in 2013, in the aftermath of the Snowden revelations, it was understandable um, that there were some concerns about the national security implications of providers for the first time making the types of disclosures that, that we uh, have been making now for a number of years. But flash forward now, and at the end of 2018, um, we're reporting in bands of 500 and query whether there is a national security uh, moment, if you will, if a company like Google is disclosing 500 to 999 on the one hand and 731 on the other. And by the way, I, that comes off the top of my head. Um, not, not looking to uh, get an orange pinstripes anytime soon. So, um, But it is, it is an appropriate now time to consider whether we should be able to speak with a little bit more granularity and shed a little bit more light on the demands that we receive. Some folks who are familiar with FISA can understand differences between content and non-content, but even the ability, for example, to report by authority. Um, some, of, uh, some folks here may be familiar with what's known as Section 215 or Section 702. Being able to break down requests in terms of that type of granularity would be useful. Um, it would help folks understand exactly where uh, the focus is of our government in terms of seeking data from companies, uh, companies like Google. Uh, let, me, let me turn now to national security letters. Um, this has also been an area where I think the, uh, the government has been a good partner uh, in terms of enabling us to say more uh, about the demands that we receive. Um, and this isn't, by the way, just transparency for its own sake here. Um, the USA Freedom Act uh, also uh, required the US Department of Justice um, to look uh, on a more regular and periodic basis at the non-disclosure orders that were that typically accompany national security letters, and to ask whether there was a need uh, for providers to to be gagged, for lack of a better word, on an ongoing and indefinite basis. Uh, and to its credit, the Department of Justice has taken this responsibility seriously. They've looked at national security letters that have been issued to providers like Google uh, in the past, and they've questioned and they've looked and they said there's no longer a need for us. Um, to uh, have this non-disclosure obligation be placed on you, and we're releasing you from that and allowing you to publish, uh, to, to, to publish the fact that you received this letter. But not only that, uh, the text of the national security letter itself. 
Um, and when I say it's not just transparency for transparency's sake, if you look at the national security letters that companies like Google and Facebook and others have received, and others have published the text of the letters themselves, what you're seeing is that the national security letters are asking for certain types of information that are authorized under the statute. And NSLs, I should have started and said, national security letters the, are, are um, sort of the equivalent of, of subpoenas in the domestic context. They enable, uh, the, they, they enable Department of Justice to get a limited subset of data, uh, the types of information that you would provide when you, for example, are signing up for a Google account, your name, your address, maybe a credit card number, some other basic, uh, basic information. Um, but what we've also been able to, uh, I, I think, learn as a result of the disclosure of these NSLs, the text, is that the uh, Department of Justice has also invited providers to provide another set of information called electronic uh, communication transaction records, or ECTRs. Um, there's been an ongoing debate about whether um, uh, the underlying national security letter statute authorizes the Department of Justice to obtain actors with a national security letter. And there's even been a legislative proposal uh, to uh, require providers to provide a broad universe of information, um, uh, the actors the themselves. Um, that's a source of ongoing debate. We have some real concerns with it. But I think what the point I would make here is that but for the ability to publish uh, these national security letters themselves, uh, it would be opaque to the public that these records, these electronic communication transaction records, have been requested uh, from companies. So transparency is going to help inform the, the debate to the extent that this issue uh, arises again in the future. Let me make one other uh, two. OK, so emergency requests. Um, Alexander talked a little bit about this. Um, the Domestic law in the United States here, the Stored Communications Act, authorizes providers like Google, uh, authorizes but does not require us to uh, disclose uh, information where there's a serious risk of bodily injury or death on an emergency basis and without legal process. Uh, when we testified uh, before Congress in 2013, um, separately uh, in support of uh, uh, the Email Privacy Act, or what became the Email Privacy Act, the uh, ongoing piece of legislation that everyone thinks should pass but never does, um, hopefully we'll do in 2019. Uh, we, we were uh, having this discussion and uh, we testified before Congress, uh, a law enforcement official testified um, and made the assertion that at least some providers have a policy of categor categorically refusing to disclose um, data on an emergency basis and that providers have uh, and that some providers have demanded that they receive uh, compulsory process or search warrants. Um, to us, that wasn't, certainly wasn't the case. Uh, at the time, we weren't disclosing that data. We weren't providing any insight into the emergency requests that we received. Um, and the implication, at least, for some who, uh, you know, who, who saw the testimony um, was that the biggest providers were the ones that were not um, providing data on a voluntary basis in emergency situations. For us, and I know for a number of other providers, this is the most serious type of request that we receive. It's one of the reasons we're staffed 24-7, 365, uh, because if there is that type of a risk, um, we want to be in a position to provide the data. Uh, we don't want to see uh, anybody seriously harmed or killed as a result uh, of us not being able to provision data in a situation where uh, time is of the essence. So we did um, 
disclose that data. We started to disclose that data. What you're seeing is the latest uh, transparency report, um, which shows quite clearly uh, that when we get emergency requests, we do disclose that data the vast majority of the time. Um, we saw other providers follow suit and publish the same data. Um, and I think what we saw as a result of this is that none of the major service providers are requiring warrants in situations where there is an emergency. Um, that has helped to inform the debate because there have been proposals to require service providers, uh, in part because there was this belief that we were not disclosing this data voluntarily, to require service providers without a warrant to disclose this information uh, on the mere invocation of, of an emergency without a, without a, 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 you know, a concomitant uh, showing um, that the emergency exists. And so this is an ongoing uh, issue in the policy uh, realm around the issue of the Email Privacy Act about whether companies should be required to disclose this data uh, when law enforcement agencies come to us and say that there's an emergency. Um, so that, that is it. I just wanted to be able to shed a little bit light uh, on the policy implications behind some of the information that, uh, that we've published. And I think we're going to continue to try and innovate uh, and to recognize situations where we think uh, uh, more data can help to inform the public policy debates. Thanks. Thank you, David. So, of course, transparency uh, on a voluntary basis like that is, is a good thing and has provided a lot of useful information, but sometimes it is not enough. Sometimes Information has to be uh, pried from the unwilling maw of uh, the government itself. Uh, and in those cases, it is the Freedom of Information Act that is uh, often the most effective tool. Uh, so to discuss that, I'd like to invite up uh, Jesse Franzblau from Open the Government. Thanks a lot, Julian. Um, um, yeah, so I will definitely talk a lot about the kind of uh, deep prying that, that we're involved in using, using the Freedom of Information Act to try to get information uh, particularly related to surveillance programs, um, information that we didn't have before. Um, some really tremendous groups used FOIA to, uh, to unlock that information. So um, a little bit about my organization. So Open the Government is a coalition. Uh, of over 100 organizations, um, all public interest organizations, an inclusive nonpartisan coalition that works to strengthen our democracy and empower the public by advancing policies that create more open, accountable, and responsive government. Um, we do a lot of work within the coalition uh, using the Freedom of Information Act. It's one of the most powerful tools that we have uh, as public interest uh, advocates to get information um, from government agencies. Um, there's a lot of great organizations within the coalition and outside of our coalition that are using FOIA to get information about um, surveillance programs. And so um, earlier this year, um, we published uh, a guide on best practices of how to use FOIA successfully to get information um, related to issues that we care a lot about. Um, and several of those cases look at how FOIA is being used to get information about surveillance programs. Um, both at the state and, uh, and federal and, um, and national level. Um, and so I'm going to talk about a few of those cases today, particularly some of the, the FOIA work that's being done to expose um, records that have helped 
inform the public about surveillance programs that raise First Amendment protected, um, that, that raise concern over surveillance uh, First Amendment protected activity, uh, and um, secret information sharing programs that raise concerns about Fourth Amendment circumvention. Um, so the first case I'll look at is one that the color, the organization's Color of Change and um, Center for Constitutional Rights have been involved in for several years trying to get information about surveillance uh, of protest movements, particularly um, monitoring of the Movement for Black Lives Matter organizing um, and what they have uncovered through, through this work is information showing that there is quite extensive um, monitoring by Department of Homeland Security and, and the FBI uh, of the Movement for Black Lives organizing, uh, including internal emails, field reports that have been shared and circulated with law enforcement agencies across the country. Um, and they've also showed some information um, pointing to things that we don't know about what's, what's taking place in terms of surveillance of protest organizing. Some of the documents that they've gotten refer to uh, a document um, called the Race Paper, which raises obvious concerns about the FBI programs that are being maybe carried out in a racially biased uh, manner. So this has been an important case. Um, another somewhat similar one um, is Sarah St. Vincent at Human Rights Watch has done a lot of FOIA work to get information uh, about um, how Section 702 of the FISA, which is mentioned, Executive Order 1233, uh, um, has been used, uh, th these, these laws that, that govern uh, large-scale surveillance programs um, have been used in, in different ways that, again, um, raise uh, uh, Fourth Amendment constitutional um, concerns. And what they've, uh, some of those revelations have shown is that um, U.S. authorities uh, regularly hide information, um, sources of evidence in criminal cases, um, which is a big concern. And the, the documents that um, Human Rights Watch has been able to get show that this is happening a lot more systematically um, than was really previously uh, publicly known. So this is a really important case uh, for your work that's ongoing. Um, another more recent one, Freedom of the Press Foundation uh, and the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia we're able to obtain the, just the Justice Department's secret rules for targeting journalists uh, with secret FISA court orders. Um, this has been a really important um, exposure, an important uh, piece of information to get out into the public realm um, as it confirms long suspicions that the government has used secret FISA court orders um, to, uh, to conduct surveillance on journalists. Um, and so that's a important revelation that um, there's still efforts to try to get more information about what this signifies in terms of still how often uh, these FISA orders are being used to monitor journalists. Um, but this is kind of, you know, one of these uh, tip of the iceberg types of uh, pieces of information that's come out through FOIA that's been really important. Um, another case, uh, Project on Government Oversight was able to obtain um, emails showing uh, Amazon's um, uh, kind of pushing this uh, face recognition technology on agencies. Uh, these ones particularly related to uh, Amazon pitching uh, the Department of Homeland Security to, to provide them with the uh, recognition, uh, recognition with the K, which has been talked about here earlier, the pretty controversial face recognition technology 
um, that's being used more and more by law enforcement and federal agencies. Um, and this piece was important to understand um, what's happening kind of behind closed doors. And also, um, it came at a time when, when several Amazon uh, employees were, were anonymously uh, objecting to Amazon pushing this type of technology, providing it to, to federal agencies, uh, particularly at DHS, where there's a lot of um, privacy and civil liberties and civil rights concerns with the way that this uh, technology is being used. Um, the next case um, looks at how organizations are providing platforms to give tools for the public across the country to be able to use Freedom of Information Act uh, at the federal level, but also at state, uh, using uh, the state uh, information laws to get, uh, to get records about how local surveillance is happening. So Muckrock and the Electronic Frontier Foundation have provided some really tremendous platforms for people to see how um, invasive surveillance technology is being, is being used at the local level. Um, and providing these tools, uh, it's kind of giving the, uh, giving the public um, the ability to, to, to create the requests themselves um, and to dig into what's happening uh, at their local communities. Um, the last example um, that I'll talk about is one that um, opened the government. My organization was able to obtain some documents from using um, the, the D.C. open records laws. So this is an example of how state um, open records laws can be used in a functioning and a really effective way to get information um, about uh, oftentimes what federal agencies are also involved in, where, where federal um, agencies might be less willing to release the information. Um, so in this case, we filed information uh, requests related to um, the security planning that was happening in the lead up to the, um, to the 2017 uh, inauguration, presidential inauguration. And what we got were some documents back that showed that there was... Um, but there was some monitoring of protest groups in the lead up to, to Inauguration Day, um, where there were pretty large scale protests that were being planned. Um, and the documents point to this, but they're very heavily redacted. The documents um, are almost entirely blacked out with only kind of small snippets to, to what was happening in terms of uh, the intelligence monitoring that was taking place beforehand. Um, and even though the DC mayors ordered the, the D.C. police to release more information about this case to, to remove the redactions and, and search for more records uh, based on an appeal that we filed. Um, to, to date, the, the D.C. police have not responded with the information. They've indicated that the Federal Secret Service is asking them uh, to withhold the information um, on their request. So this is an interesting case that is uh, still unfolding and we'll, we'll let you know how, uh, how that one unfolds. So in the guide, we were able to come up with some um, recommendations based on all of these examples, based on these kind of best case uh, examples of, of how FOIA work has successfully led to the disclosure of important information that's been really critical in advocacy campaigns and in raising uh, public awareness. Um, and so we come up with some kind of fundamental tips and recommendations on what makes, uh, what composes uh, successful FOIA work. So doing the background research is, is one where understanding what 
what else is happening out there in, in, the, in the landscape? Um, who else is filing similar requests? And what successes have they had or what obstacles they've ran into and how to craft your own requests accordingly? Uh, also, so you're not duplicating efforts and bogging down FOIA offices. Um, describing the specific records, so getting you know, in as much detail as you can to identify the specific documents you're looking for. Uh, also using other um, means like mandatory declassification review if you are able to identify a specific enough document using that as a pathway to get information, uh, national security related information. Um, appealing the, the, the denial by an agency uh, is often you know, an avenue to get more information after they have initially withheld um, uh, information in response to your, your original FOIA request. And then on FOIA collaboration, so we've seen that a lot of success happens when groups are working uh, in, in unison. So when organizations are teaming up with journalists or technologists, uh, grassroots organizations are teaming up with litigators, uh, there's a lot of really great synergy that happens when, when, when organizations and journalists uh, and advocates team up uh, to, to file requests uh, and follow those through to, to get the information that they want. So learning what other groups um, are doing and learning the landscape is an important element uh, to collaborative work. Uh, planning litigation strategies early, so before you file a request, uh, talking with litigators to, to see what, what else has been litigated. So if you think it's going to be rejected, um, you're not you're wasting your time in, in going forward with the case that, that you're not going to be able to litigate. And if you are, uh, planning it accordingly to be able to um, kind of predict that, that, um, that fight. Uh, coordinating with, early with journalists, of course, is a, is a big one to get the story out, but also get ideas from journalists about what's newsworthy. And then vice versa, journalists uh, that are filing requests, getting information from FOIA experts uh, about what they should be targeting, uh, partnering up in that way can be a really effective way to increase access to information broadly. Uh, promoting FOIA reforms, you see again and again different FOIA redactions uh, that come up that are blocking uh, access to information, so promoting uh, you know, legislative changes that can actually fix this, which is often a long-term strategy, but a pretty, pretty critical one. Uh, and using state and local open records laws, we've seen um, that across the board state laws vary quite a bit, but some laws are, uh, in different states are pretty effective in getting information that that federal uh, agency might not be releasing to you. Uh, looking at archives overseas, so we've seen some cases where groups have been partnering with organizations uh, in other countries, uh, such as Mexico, using their information law to get documents about U.S. foreign policy in that country and what's, what, what's happening with U.S. Uh, government relations, um, which, again, is often a way to get information that the U.S., uh, government might not be willing to release, but through using laws overseas, uh, might have some success. We've seen some of those cases. So there are a lot of FOIA resources um, that we have, a lot of groups in our coalition and outside. Um, there are just a few listed up here. Um, but we're also trying to continue to document successful FOIA work and what it entails. So if you have stories um, about the successes that you've had or the challenges that you've had in your FOIA work, uh, let, let us know. And um, the FOIA guide is also available on the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, uh, their FOIA wiki site, 
and we're working to update that with new stories. So let me know what's worked, what's been successful, and where you've had luck in getting, getting information through, through your FOIA work. Thanks. So in the debate around encryption, I often think of an old uh, Eddie Izzard routine, the British comedian. Uh, he's talking about invading Russia, but it applies just as well, trust me, to uh, debates about cryptography and backdoors. The idea is, you know, every few years someone goes, oh, I've got a different idea, I've got a different idea, and they sort of head for the Russian border, and then they go, oh, it's the same idea, it's the same idea, and they run away realizing it's, it's, it's not going to work. Um, and I think something similar has here, happens here. There is a kind of constant call for the, you know, the very smart nerds in Silicon Valley to somehow find a way to make it possible for law enforcement to access uh, encrypted communications without seriously compromising security. And periodically, something that looks like a new idea comes along. Uh, and pretty often, it turns out to be a version of an old idea that's still, uh, that's still pretty bad. Um, we're having another cycle of that lately, and I'd like to invite the uh, esteemed cryptographer, uh, Matt Green of Johns Hopkins University, to walk us through some of the, uh, the new proposals that are being floated for exceptional access to encrypted communications uh, and some of the problems with them as well. Okay, so this is uh, going to be a slightly different talk. It's going to be a technical talk, but very, very slightly technical, so hopefully not too, too boring for anyone. Um, so, so thank you for that introduction. Just in case anybody has not been following the last few years of debate over encryption, I just want to give a very brief background. Uh, ever since basically the smartphone came along a couple of years after that, we've been having a very interesting national debate, mostly between law enforcement agencies and Silicon Valley, about whether end-to-end -end encryption is something that should be allowed unfettered or whether there should be some way for law enforcement to essentially eavesdrop, add back doors to encrypted communications. And this, in the past, this is actually a continuation of a long debate that goes back to the 1990s. It's gained a great deal of salience right now because the numbers have changed. In the 1990s, when we encrypted things, we had tools like PGP, and I'm guessing nobody here uses PGP, maybe. Um, but how many folks in this audience use WhatsApp? And how many people in this audience use Apple iMessage or FaceTime? Okay, so smaller numbers, but still like overall worldwide, we're talking about several billion people, or at least two billion people. So these are, are very, very significant differences. And of course, this, this issue has gotten a lot more interesting. Now, the result of this, oh, I should actually use this tool. The result of this starting, I think it was in 2013, 2014, was the beginning of something that the FBI, at least here in the US, we call the going dark debate, and some people call it going spotty. Um, the British prefer going spotty, but uh, what it basically is, is the question of should law enforcement have access to these communications? And while we all probably know a little bit about the background, there are two things that I wanna highlight in this debate. The first is that the debate actually covers some very different technologies. Uh, most people are familiar with the debate as far as uh, it's kind of the biggest place where it's exploded in the world, which was the Apple versus FBI case, where we had a um, basically an argument about an encrypted phone, a phone that had potentially information on it, data on it. This phone was encrypted. We could not get into it without the passcode. And Apple, unfortunately for Apple, had designed the phone in such a way that it could not be accessed without that passcode 
and or without Apple in some way collaborating and basically building tools to help the FBI decrypt it. But Apple was very opposed to that and we ended up with a kind of a, a, a big war between these two, two organizations, which ended when the FBI was able to hack the phone by themselves using assistance from a contractor. But I wanna point out that this debate has not always just been about phones. We've heard a lot about phones, but in practice there are two different sides to this debate and technically they're very, very different. So on the one hand, we have device encryption, and device encryption is something that's basically a default in all phones today. On the other, we have this kind of much bigger and more complicated area of encrypted messaging, chat, text messages, and group phone calls, video calls, and so on. Uh, all FaceTime calls right now are encrypted. They support group encrypted phone calling up to 32 parties now. Um, WhatsApp and Signal and other apps also offer phone calls as well, and those are end-to-end -end encrypted. And the reason that these are very, very different problems technically is super boring and super important. And the reason is this. When I encrypt my phone, I'm encrypting to myself. When I send you an encrypted text message or make a phone call, I'm encrypting to you. And the problem, this is one of the oldest problems in uh, encryption computer security, the problem with encrypting to you has nothing to do with encryption. It has nothing to do with the actual algorithms that we, we use to do this. The problem has to do with how do I know you are you? And we, can, we, we really define this as the key distribution problem if you want to get boring about it, but it's really a usable security problem. It's a question of how do I know that when I encrypt to this big number which claims to be your cryptographic key, that actually belongs to you and not somebody else who's pretending to be you? How do I know when I have a group call with five people that there aren't actually six people and that sixth person is someone who should not be on the call? And this is what this proposal I'm about to talk about addresses. Okay, so we're mostly going to be in this much more complicated end-to-end uh, -end encrypted messaging uh, area, and this is what we're going to focus on, at least for this proposal. Okay, so to, to kind of bring us down to what I'm talking about today, there was about two or three weeks ago a uh, really interesting public proposal that was put forward by two members of GCHQ. If you're not familiar with GCHQ, they're the UK's version of the NSA, but they're kind of more than the NSA. The NSA focuses on one particular thing, which is collecting intelligence from abroad, whereas the GCHQ also does criminal uh, technical work for you know, the equivalent of the FBI and so on over in the UK. Um, the two people who were involved in this public proposal were also very interesting. You don't see anybody in the US intelligence community giving public speeches about how we should break encryption. In fact, it's been very hard to get any kind of information out of the US government about how they want their proposals to be implemented. But the GCHQ folks actually have ideas and they have been going on basically a charm offensive around the, around the country trying to convince people that their ideas are very strong. Uh, two other things I wanna mention. These folks are Ian Levy, who is a technical director at the National Cyber Security Institute, uh, in, uh, which is part of GCHQ. The other person whose picture I was not able to find anywhere on the internet is the head of cryptanalysis for GCHQ. And if you saw the imitation game, basically this is the person who inherited you know, Alan Turing's job now. This is the person who actually breaks all the crypto. So these are really heavy hitters, at least in the crypto world, not people you would expect to be going out telling us how to uh, listen to our SMS messages. All right, so this is actually a very, very brief talk because the proposal is extremely vague, extremely simple. 
The basic idea, and I've heard this uh, proposed as part of a talk, but they also have this great lawfare article, which you can look for, is to target a part of these systems that is called the identity management subsystem. Now, when we talk about people making encrypted phone calls, we tend to think about one person talking to another person. Maybe there's a group call. But these are the only two parties we talk about. They're end-to-end -end encrypted. This is not actually what happens in these systems. In these systems, there is always a third party, and that third party is the provider, the provider that actually manages the process of making sure that these two individuals can actually get together and talk. When you go and you open up an Apple iMessage conversation, you press new conversation, you type in the person's name or phone number, what happens invisibly to you is your phone sends a message to Apple servers that says, this phone number, give me the key for this person. And you get a key back from Apple. Is it the right key? Well, maybe, probably, it almost certainly is. If you trust Apple, it's the right key, but maybe it's not. In fact, you don't just get one key. If that person has 20 devices attached to their account, and I have kids, and we have a lot of devices attached to my account, uh, then you're actually getting a whole collection of keys, one for every single device that person has, their phones, their iPads, their whatevers. And so you could get a huge pile of keys. You don't know which ones are real. If there's an extra key in there, you're not gonna know about it because Apple does not expose any of this information to the user. The beautiful thing about these systems, you type in a name and you can just start texting. But this call does happen in the background, keys come down to you, and of course the same thing has to happen to the other party so they can verify the information is correct and send messages back to you. And this part of the system in Apple's world, it has a, it has a whole uh, technical name, but we just generally call it the identity management subsystem. If you trust this to work, it's a beautiful system. If you don't trust it, or if it's corrupted somehow, perhaps legally, bad things can happen to you. Now, I wanna show you another aspect of this. Imagine that we are dealing with group calling. Now, in Apple's case, the interesting thing about this is group calling and group chat is really actually just what's happening every time you make a call. Because like I said, if I have 20 devices attached to my account, and you, even if I'm just doing a one-on-one -on -one chat with you, I'm still doing a group chat where all my devices are participants. But if you use group chat, if you use group SMS explicitly, the same thing is happening. You have three people, and hopefully, if your system works well, you know who is part of your group iMessage or your group FaceTime because the phone will tell you who has joined this call. And it's Apple's job, whoops, it's Apple's job to make sure that happens. It's Apple's job to make sure the application tells you who's in the group chat. And all of those things are features we just fundamentally rely on every time we use these systems. Which brings us to the, um, which brings us to the proposal. The proposal is basically somehow to break the trust relationship between Apple and its users to ask Apple to add extra individuals into group calls. In the case of Apple iMessage, that would be the ascent, the equivalent of adding a new device onto your target's account. If we're talking about um, WhatsApp or Signal, that would be the equivalent of adding a third participant into these pairwise calls or adding a fourth participant into a, a three-way call and so on. It's a very simple thing to do. It has some significant implications though. And the, one of the implications is that we are already building systems that are supposed to defend against this. If you're doing a group chat with two other people or three other people, and another person joins your call, this can be done. It's possible for the WhatsApp servers, for example, or the iMessage servers to say, have this additional person join your call. Your phone is supposed to be truthful 
and it's supposed to tell you that this has happened. And what happens is a warning message comes up or you can press a button and you can see who's in the call. In order for GCHQ's proposal to work, a number of those mechanisms would have to be disabled. Your phone would now essentially have to suppress the warnings that tell you a new person has joined and it would have to suppress at least one person from the list so that the law enforcement agencies could be there. How do you put in that new code? That new code has to exist on the server side, on the provider side. It has to exist in the app. How do you get it there? You can't do it at the point where you're targeting a particular criminal. You have to put this new code into every single person's device so that there is now a way to send and to add a new user invisibly to the phone. And so this means you are essentially telling Apple and WhatsApp and everybody to remove security features from their phone that can be, so that they can be deactivated in a selective way and to do this across their entire customer base. The only way I can see, I really don't see Apple, I don't see WhatsApp, Facebook doing this voluntarily. So this is going to require some sort of legal measure to do this. And there is such a legal measure. I'm not an expert in, in UK law, but there is this thing called a technical capability notice which GCHQ can use to basically force limited changes uh, to infrastructure, telecoms infrastructure, to allow this. So there is at least a hypothetical way to do this using these technical capability notices. Australia recently passed a law which also allows them even broader, more powerful, sort of unspecified capabilities, which might include this as well. So this is the kind of thing that can happen. So this is certainly a, a, a technique for doing this. The second problem, here, though, is that what we're doing is we're finding a hole. And we're trying to drive through that hole. And it's, it's, I, I respect GCHQ for at least coming up with a technical proposal. The problem is, once you identify a hole in a security system, there's an instinct for the people who design that security system to go and fix the hole. And in fact, once you just make a presentation that says, hey, we really want to drive through this hole, you don't have to actually drive through the hole. Just saying you plan to do it is more or less notice for Apple and company to start fixing it. How do you prevent companies from repairing this thing that they're going to see as a flaw? It's difficult to say. One of two things happens. One thing that happens is companies like Apple and Facebook shut the hole and this entire proposal disappears. Unfortunately, the other thing that could happen is that GCHQ could come in and they could say, you can't fix it. You can't deploy any fix whether intentionally designed to stop this particular attack or not, that will prevent us from exploiting this particular vulnerability in the system. The system must remain permanently vulnerable because we rely on exploiting this particular feature. This has the weird property of essentially making GCHQ or various law enforcement agencies into the technical system designers for a huge class of these communication systems. There will be essentially a freeze in um, improvements that allow us to protect the way that key distribution systems work. And this is a really big deal because key distribution doesn't just affect consumers sending text messages. We are actually, these are two of the areas, key distribution and usable security design, that are kind of the unsolved problems in our field. And these affect government communications. They affect all sorts of other communication systems as well. So we could essentially, if this is allowed to go through, we could put the development of these communication systems back by a decade or more. And so this is really kind of the problem where, where the only way this proposal can work is essentially to stop the development of these systems. So that's really it. It's a very simple proposal. The last thing that I really want to say about this is that despite the fact that I'm criticizing this proposal, 
I'm extremely happy that GCHQ has given us something concrete to talk about because throughout this entire debate of the last several years, the, the overall approach to this problem has basically been to accuse industry and accuse academia of not being able to come up with ways to assist law enforcement when, when our argument has been that adding these kinds of surveillance backdoors essentially weakens the security of the system and there's no way to get rid of that trade-off. Um, but having a concrete proposal on the floor at least allows us to start doing that analysis and we can put some sort of concrete result behind our, uh, our claims that this is not necessarily secure. And so that's it. So thank you very much.